Amenville Church. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, your word says that the heavens declare the glory of God, and it is an unbelievable thing to think that you speak and mountains and stars exist, that you breathe life into beings and we come to being. It's an unbelievable thought that you have more power than we could ever possibly imagine. We can't even make Lego sets, and yet you are creating galaxies. Jesus, I want to thank you that you laid aside the privileges of deity and you became a human, you became a baby, you allowed at the right time your creation to execute you when you could have just blinked and they all would have been obliterated. Father, you raised Jesus from the dead, proving that you have power and that this Jesus is no mere dead man, but he is the son of God with power. And so we have this joy to be on this side of the cross and look back and to see the death and the resurrection of Christ. And Lord, you have not just revealed yourself in nature, but you've revealed yourself in Jesus and now also in your word. You are just pouring for a speech about who you are and what you think and what is important to you in this world and why we're here and where we're going. And so again, we get to open up your special revelation, uh, unique from you for us to teach us and to train us imbued with power by your spirit. And so God, we just counted a great great delight, a great delight to just relish in what you have given to us. So God, would you give our our minds understanding, but would you also allow us to think your thoughts? Lord, we bring so many ridiculous ideas about the world and reality to the table, but your ideas are better. Your ideas are perfect and true, and so would you give us even the ability by your spirit to submit our ideas to yours? Lord, we have passions and values, but yours are better. Would you give us the ability through your word and your spirit to submit our passions and values? And Lord, we also have ways of life that we just like, and they're easy, and yet, God, we want the life of Christ to be lived through us. And so, Lord, we come with all of these huge asks, but you are the king of hearts and minds and of lives. So we submit ourselves to you, and and, uh, Lord, some of us need encouragement today. God, would you just give encouragement? Lord, I don't know what it is in this sermon that some people need to hear, but Lord, some of us are just beat up and we just need to hear your encouragement to our minds and to our souls. Some of us need to be rebuked. Um, And so Lord, we just trust that your spirit will do that in the way that bears fruit and repentance. But all in all, Lord, would you make us more like Jesus in this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. You may be seated. If I haven't had the joy to meet you, my name is Michael. I'm the lead pastor here at the Village Church. Today, we launch a new study on the book of, guess it? First Peter. Awesome. Open up your Bibles to the book of First Peter. That would be great. And then uh, one of my jobs as a preacher, as a teacher in a local church, is to prepare all of us for the what-ifs. To prepare us for the what-ifs. So, for example, what if my life falls apart? Uh, what if my friend wants to trust in Christ? Like, what, what do I say to them? What if I get cancer? What if I fall into a ton of money? What if I'm broke? What if I have children? What if I never have a spouse? What if my spouse divorces me? What if my friends are hurting? What if my friends are celebrating? I mean, there are so many what-ifs, are there not? In the Word of God, we open it up, and one of my jobs is to prepare you and to give you tools for all of the crazy what-ifs that are going to happen about life. Now, a little history lesson for you. About 30 years ago, the American Evangelical Church, they had a huge what-if that they were asking, and they were trying to prepare, prepare themselves for it. Now, here is the what-if the American Evangelical Church was asking 30 years ago. 
What if the church loses the culture war? And here's what they meant. What if marijuana is legalized? What if public schools indoctrinate our kids with anti-Christian propaganda? What if the LGBT agenda wins? What if people stop going to church? What if pulpits are more self-help than God revelation? I could go on. I don't know if you've noticed, um, but today we are living in their what what if. Do you see that? And so there's all this fear in the church 30 years ago. It's like, what if, what if, what if, what if? And then welcome to the new reality. Like their what if is our what is. And guess what? The world hasn't exploded, right? Like we're able to make it. We're able to thrive for Jesus Christ no matter what the what is is. Are we able to live for Jesus, give him glory, raise children who love the Lord, etc.? Like our mission has not stopped just because the context has stopped. I mean, you even notice in sermons, our so what's, our applications, they have shifted to a brand new set of what is and what ifs. So now here are some what ifs that now face the American evangelical church that may or may not ever come true in your lifetime. But as you start to hear preachers and see the books that are written, there are new what ifs that are emerging. Let me share with you the new series of what ifs. What if it becomes illegal to teach basic Christian doctrine to your kids because it's deemed hate speech? What if the government can take your kids simply because of what you believe? What if homeschooling or Christian schooling becomes illegal? What if the government decides once and for all that sexual freedom is a more basic human right than religious freedom? What if the government decides the Christian way of life is a threat? What if a particular state legislature votes to make it illegal for conservative Christians or anybody from any other faith to be hired in their state because it's an unsafe ideology? What if Jesus goes from annoying to offensive to ultimately illegal? Now, as I say that, you could be like, man, that's like super negative. Now, here's the deal. There are so many what ifs. I have no idea what the future holds, but here's what I do know. Our job is to prepare the local church for the what ifs while at the same time we do not lose our delight in the what ifs. The people of God are a chosen people, chosen and set apart to be filled with joy and life and love. And we prepare for the what ifs, but I'm telling you, Village Church, we cannot lose our joy and our life and the love just because the what ifs get scarier and scarier. Now, let me give you an illustration of what this looks like. Um, In my home, my home is prepared for enjoyment, connection, and sleep, okay? Um, these are like three things I really want to make sure. I should have added a fourth one, food, right? That's really valuable. Uh, there are so many what ifs that could happen in my home, and let me share with you a few of them. What if mosquitoes try to take over my backyard, sprayed, done, ready to go? What if animals try to eat my chickens? This happens like every day. Gates closed, pen sealed, and locked. What if you try to break in my back door? Double locked, go for it, just try it. What if you're hoping our cars are unlocked at night? Um, locked with an alarm. What if someone tries to get in our windows? Locked. What if the CO2 levels in our home become dangerous? Monitored constantly. What if there's a tornado? Basement. Boom. Ready to go. What if there's a flood? Four sump pumps. Do you have four sump pumps? We do. Can you say flooded twice? Never again. <laughs> what if a mouse gets in my house? Snap neck. Boom. Done. Prepared. Headache. Motrin. Ready to go. 
Dog pees on the carpet, green machine. Know exactly where it's at. Like, we're ready. Now, anything could happen in my home. 99% of all the what-ifs that could happen, I think we're pretty doggone prepared for. But But the primary experience of my home is supposed to be sleep, food, connection, and delight. That's the primary experience. Now, here, here's, here's part of the challenge. The audience of 1 Peter is going through something incredibly, profoundly difficult. And they got to figure out how we're going to live for Jesus, how we're going to live when our what-ifs become our what-is, and yet not let them steal our life and our joy and our love. And so here's what the, first, the book of 1 Peter is all about. It's about how to live for Jesus when your what-ifs become your what-is. Now, here's the question, the audience of 1 Peter. This is their new what-if They're finding themselves in a new reality of their new what if is this. What if my country rejects me? What if my country rejects me? Now, as you open up your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, I want you to imagine with me for a moment what if. What if the Illinois government is beginning to identify Christians? What if they're forcing employers to terminate their job? Jobs. What if they're requiring banks to take away their homes? What if they are threatening to jail Christians if they don't leave the state now? What if your pension is gone? What if your access to your bank accounts is revoked? And what if the White House is completely silent? The surrounding states have room, but your needs, along with all of the other Christians and those of semi-conservative faiths, are an inconvenience, and they're astronomical. You are a cultural inconvenience, You are now a cultural and religious minority. Your worldview is seen as oppressive, ignorant, and maybe even dangerous. Some of your friends out of state invite you in, but they're afraid, and so they try to hide you and keep you under the radar. What do you feel? Okay, here's my, I'm mad. The injustice of this, this is not the America I knew, what is happening. Now, here's some questions that I have. Do I fight back? Jesus, how do I bring you glory when my governing authorities want me out of their country or even worse, dead? Welcome to the audience of 1 Peter. This is not your reality, is it? This is the what if after your next what if. But one of our responsibilities here as a church, again, is to give you the tools so that when whatever what if comes, you are ready to deal with it. And so I don't know what that what if is, but if you're prepared for that what if, let me just tell you, I can't imagine uh, there are too many other what ifs that you wouldn't be prepared for. And so that's one of our our desires in the book of 1 Peter is to say, how do I prepare myself for what Christians all over the world right now are actually going through? Like that is real. Like people are dying right now today just simply for affiliation with Jesus. Like how do I prepare myself for that and yet never let that preparation Uh, get in the way of my love and my life and my joy in Jesus Christ. These are some of the challenges. Now, one day you're living in some place in what is called modern Turkey today. It's about a 300 square, 300,000 square mile area, if you will. Uh, You have been running for your life. Uh, Christians there don't know if they're totally safe. You have been exiled, if you will, and you're trying to figure out what's next. And then all of a sudden, this guy, his name is Silvanus. You also might know him in the Bible as Silas. He's a messenger. He's a prophet. And he's got a letter. And Silas, or Silvanus, goes around your city, and he's trying to find 
Christians, whether or not they live, they were born and lived in this area or this city, or whether or not they were moved there out of town because of some sort of dispersion from the government. Whatever it is, he's trying to find these Christians. So he finally gets them together, and you and your children and all the other Christians from the city gather together, and he begins to read a letter. And it starts off in First Peter chapter one, verse one. And here's what Sylvanus says: Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, the moment you hear who sent the letter, immediately peace comes to your heart because you know who Peter is. Of all the uh, leaders of the church, he is the leader of the leaders, the most well-known and the most important. This is Peter. And if anybody can understand and empathize what you're personally going through, it's Peter. Uh, Open up your Bibles, go back, keep your finger in 1 Peter, but go back to John 21. I'll put most of it up on the screen here. And I want to read to you the time that Jesus approaches Peter. This is after the uh, crucifixion and the resurrection. Peter has denied Jesus three times, and Jesus is going to reinstate him into ministry. And I want you to hear this interaction. John 21, verse 15 Here's what Jesus says to Simon Peter. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He, Peter, said to him, Jesus, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So Jesus says to Peter, you know this, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So Jesus says to him, tend my sheep. Jesus says to Peter a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said it to him a third time, do you love me? And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. My sheep. Because they are vulnerable and they are of extreme value to the shepherd. But Jesus isn't done. This is where most of us think the story ends. Jesus goes on and he has something very dark and difficult to tell Peter next. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death He was to glorify God. By the way, what kind of death is an outstretched arm? Crucifixion. So he looks at him and he says, listen, your job is to take care of vulnerable people, sheep who are hurting and need a shepherd. But if you're going to do this, it will mean that one day Rome will turn on you and in the same way that they are about to crucify me, they will execute you because of your affiliation with me. What do you do? Jesus' next words, after saying this, he said to him, follow me. What do you do? I need a minute. Thank you for the honesty. I love it. Like, whoa, Jesus. Like, you just told me how I'm going to die. Let me tell you two things Peter knows 25 years before he ever writes 1 Peter. He knows this. The day will come when I will grow old and they will crucify me because of Jesus. If Peter was looking at the audience of 1 Peter, he would say persecution is this generation's inevitability. If it's not, then Jesus is a liar. That's what he knew. Number one, I, I know that if I'm going to follow Jesus, it's going to mean his certain death. 
Does that mean your certain death? No, we're talking about just Peter here. But he knows a second thing. He knows this, that my job is to shepherd people, especially when this persecution comes. So Peter is sitting in Rome, and he hears what's happening to Christians in certain parts of the Roman Empire. You gotta understand that persecution is not broken out uh, empire-wide. It's happening in sporadic, specific locations. Persecution is erupting for weird, different reasons. And so what's happening is that he's hearing about a group of people who are exiles. Some of them live in this area that we're gonna talk about in modern-day Turkey. Some of them are forced there, out of their land. But either way, he hears that there's a group of believers experiencing persecution. Like, this is his thing. And so he has a passion for these people, and he is going to take the time, and he is going to write an incredibly thoughtful, intentional letter. What does every single person experiencing suffering and persecution need to know? He's going to tell them these most basic things. He's going to tell them how you live for the glory of God, how you live in the what is and not lose your life and your joy in Christ that he doesn't ever want to be taken from you. Now, the end of 1 Peter, chapter 5, I'll show you a little bit about the guy bringing the letter, Sylvanus. Here's what it says. It says, by Sylvanus, which basically means this, that Peter is probably dictating the letter, and Sylvanus, or Silas, is writing it for him, and he's like, hey, Peter, slow down a little bit. I'm trying to write this. So they have a relationship together, and here's what Peter says of him, a faithful brother as I regard him. Now, if, if Peter says someone is a faithful brother, do you listen as a Christian in the first century? Your answer is... Whatever you say, I'm all in, we're we're with you. Peter says, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. 1 Peter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, everything up to this point, here's what he's saying. Everything I've written is accurate and true. Sylvanus is here to remind you, encourage you, read this to you, and help you understand and mine its depths. And here's what he says, stand firm in it. The reason he's saying stand firm here is because almost, I want you to hear me, almost everything Peter is going to tell them to do is going to feel counterintuitive. It's going to be the opposite of their instinct. And so this is part of the kingdom way, by the way. We have all these instincts in terms of how we should live and respond. And Peter is going to drop ideas that are going to grind your brain. You're not going to like them. He's going he's to tell you to do things that are the opposite of what you have always believed you should do. Peter understands that there is actually a lot of difficulty in the church receiving this letter because the things he is saying are counterintuitive to the human way, the Roman way, and now in our context, the American way. He says this, she who is at Babylon, which is his way of saying Rome, uh, Babylon is an ancient empire who stood for total and complete evil, debauchery, and rebellion against God. Babylon is known for its persecution. And so internally in some Christian letters, this is how they would refer to Rome. Uh, Peter is probably in Rome writing them this letter, hearing what's happening. He says, she who is at Babylon, that would be the church in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. So in as much as Sylvanus is speaking for Peter, who is Peter speaking for? Let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 1. Here's what he says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Okay, this word, irritatingly so, is uh, stolen by, I would just say, not well-intentioned uh, preachers on TV, okay? So here's what I want to help you do. I want to help you understand the word apostle, show you some of the requirements for this thing, and then hopefully it'll give you what you need to understand why people get on TV and they say, I'm an apostle, so-and-so, give me all your money. Okay, uh, 
An apostle, in the most literal sense of the word, it's a messenger. It's somebody who comes representing, and that is a true use of the word. And so on a very literal level, uh, Peter was a messenger representative of Jesus, just as Silvanus was a representative of Peter. Ultimately here, Jesus is the authority. There's a deeper theological meaning to this word. And the second way the word is used, that it's used here, is the word apostle is like an office or like a job. So, for example, many of you pastor people, but you don't have the title of pastor. My title is lead pastor. Matt Young's title is worship pastor. Like those are actually job titles with descriptions and requirements that come with them, right? Uh, some of you may lead, but that might not be your actual job title and description. The word apostle is a job title. It is an office that has very specific requirements in the Bible for someone to actually call themselves this. Now, here are the three requirements if you're going to be called an apostle. Number one, you have to have been a witness of the resurrected Christ. In fact, Peter, after Judas betrays Jesus, is trying to replace him as an apostle, as one of those early leaders of the church, and they put this rule in place saying, um, here's what we want. We want to make sure that they have been with us, walked with Jesus, and they have seen the resurrected Christ firsthand. We don't want just somebody who's hearing about this stuff. We want somebody who's actually seen this and experienced it. Number two, they have to have been explicitly chosen by the Holy Spirit, and the way you know that happens is because the other apostles affirm it. And number three, this is my favorite, they have to have the ability to perform signs and wonders. So when your uh, person that you meet says, I'm an apostle so-and-so, you should say to them, oh, would you do some signs and wonders? And uh, that is a requirement for an apostle, by the way. Um, And that's one of the ways that people would be able to distinguish whether or not it's a true apostle or a false apostle. Typically, people nowadays use the word apostle to exert authority so they can take advantage of people and get money. By and large, I'm going to go with 98.35% of the people who use that term. Um, That is their general approach to health, wealth, prosperity. And so this word has been hijacked from the scriptures. Uh, There actually are no more apostles nowadays because nobody can meet all those requirements. You see that? So they existed to lay the foundation of the church, the doctrinal foundation, the moral foundation, uh, the infrastructure foundation. These are the guys that traveled to different parts of the world, and they planted church after church after church, and the local church exploded globally through their work and their disciples who followed them. And so Peter says this, I'm an apostle. He has no shame in his calling. When the Spirit calls you to something like this, you own it. He's not embarrassed of his job. He knows his responsibility. So when he says to these people, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ, he's saying everything that I'm telling you, is, it is as good as if Jesus himself is saying this to you. You are going to be held accountable to every word in this book. Now, if you're Peter, what do you say next? Here's what he says. To those who are elect exiles. Uh, An exile, in its most literal sense, it's people who are forced out of their homeland into a foreign land. People who are not in their heart and home culture, but find themselves typically forced out. Maybe a refugee is also a really good understanding of this concept. It's not a great experience. It's a very complicated experience where typically you lose so much of your property, of your money, of your rights, and you are forced out, and you don't have 
much. Literally, there is a section of his audience that are actual exiles who have been kicked out of their homeland and have landed in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, etc., modern-day Turkey. There is, as always with Peter, the word has a literal meaning and it has a theological meaning. And so even beneath this word, this book applies to people who aren't just physical exiles. Here's what he's saying to the church. You're all exiles. You're all refugees. You're not in your homeland right now. This isn't your country. Your home is somewhere else. This world doesn't share your vision, your values, your attitude, your beliefs. This isn't your home. This isn't your culture. Your home is in heaven. Your citizenship, it's there. That, that is the most important thing. And the Christian has to understand this. We want to live as exiles in a land that is not our home with love for it, yes. With passion to see righteousness grow, to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth wherever we're at, whatever nation we're in, yes. But with an understanding that wherever we live, whatever our home country is, it is temporary and it is fleeting. Heaven is our home. That is our first citizenship, period. And so we understand this. And he says, listen, I know that it's hard. You have been forced out of your lives. You don't know all the what-ifs are in front of you. They're incredibly scary. And you're worried about your children and your future and your finances. And I get that. But I need you to understand this. This isn't your home. If we get that as a baseline, we can work together. Now let me show you a little bit of the geography here as we look at this. This is the orange area again, modern-day Turkey. You see Italy to the left or to the west. Uh, right after that is modern-day Greece. And then you get this area of Turkey where these people are being uh, persecuted and also where Peter really wants to encourage them and speak to them and to encourage their hearts. So even, even as I'm studying this and I'm reading this and I'm preaching this, like, I got to imagine there were questions that these people would have. And I think I imagine it this way because they've been my questions. I know they've been your questions. Uh, if God loved us, why would he let this happen? God, if you loved me, like, I would never do this to my kids. Why would you do this to your kids? Like, the whole scenario here puts people into a little downward spiral spiritually so that when things don't go as expected, what happens to the people of God and everybody else, we have this identity crisis. Like, what is happening? Am I in trouble? Do you love me? Are you doing this because of something I did? Have you forsaken me? Have you rejected me? And Peter wants to speak directly into this. Here's what he would say. Uh, I want you to understand something, church. Your exile, your exile was allowed or ordained by Jesus himself. Look what he says. He says this. To those who are elect exiles, two levels to this word, the surface level and the theological level. We're just in the introduction. This book is rich. This book has, this word has two layers to it. Here's number one. Your exile, as hard as it has been, was allowed or ordained by Jesus on purpose. What are you talking about? That's insanity. How could you do this? Why would you do this? To bring the gospel to places it would never otherwise go. By the way, this is what God has been doing for millennia in the Bible through the people of God. He scatters people. He scatters them. 
Why? Maybe it's because we wouldn't go otherwise. I don't know. Maybe it's because we're just so comfortable in our home. But it's not unlike God to enter into a group of people, to scatter them, and to scatter them actually to really specific places where the gospel is not known. This is not unlike him. Your suffering that you experience, here's what it does. When you're scattered and you're in pain, your suffering amplifies your message in a way that your comfort never could. Like, Jesus is up to something way bigger. Like, this is the American lie in, in, in church, right? Like, if I'm not comfortable, something must be wrong. Like, if my seat's too hard, it must, something must not be right here. And it's just not Jesus' primary concern for us, right? His primary concern is, all right, the gospel has to go everywhere. So the only way that I've figured out how to do this is to take the people of God and scatter them if they won't go. And it's just not unlike him. Village Church, I get it. Like, if you've experienced any kind of scattering, any kind of God forcing you out of one place and bringing you to another, for some of you, here's some like really minor versions of it. Like you might have lost your job and had to get a job somewhere else in a different part of the country and the Lord scattered you against your will. Maybe you had something happen with your health and the Lord forced you out of one location and is forcing you to move someplace else. He's scattering you. Here's what I know. Whenever the Lord picks up a believer and places them against their will or desire someplace else, he is always up to something. What we see is, woe is me. This is hard. And Jesus is like, get on board. I moved you. I'm doing this. Like, here's why I put you in this house. I'm scattering you to this neighborhood. I'm scattering you to this school. I'm scattering you to this city or to this state. And this is something that Christians have a very hard time with. But let's go back to Peter's calling. Is Jesus afraid to look at a believer and say, if you follow me, it's going to be really hard? No, this is what he's done with all of them. Like, this is following Jesus 101. He scatters his people, he sends us wherever he wants, and he never does it arbitrarily, aimlessly, or whatever. It's always with a purpose. So while we're moping, he's like, oh my gosh, there are so many people right around you who you need to tell about Jesus. Village Church, here's what I've learned. Your pain, when you're scattered, it preaches. Your suffering, your heartache, it preaches incredible sermons, incredible. And the question for you is what sermon are you going to preach? Your exile wasn't just elected. Uh, can you guess that there's a deeper meaning to this word? He looks at the people, and here's what he says. You are chosen. Now, it doesn't really feel good when it's like, who wants to suffer? Who wants to be scattered? You're elected. <laughs> like, doesn't exactly feel great in that moment, but what do the people of God who are scattered in suffering and in persecution need to hear? They need to hear this. You and God are good. This is not punishment. This is not karma. This is calling. And here's what he says. You're elect. Listen, you didn't choose me in the first place. So you can't unchoose me. I elected you. The most secure thing in your life is your salvation. If you could choose it, then you can unchoose it. But that's just not the way salvation works. You can't unchoose it because you never chose it. This is another one of those ideas that's going to just creep up all throughout Peter that the American evangelical church is like, I don't know about that one. And the mind, the ideas, the truth of God grinds against our American sensibilities. I see it all the time. And he's like, listen, you are chosen, which means you are secure. I covenant myself to you. 
I have committed myself to you. And your scattering is not about your disobedience or it's not about punishment. It's about intention and mission. Will you follow me if I scatter you? Of course, the answer is, let me think about it, (laughs) which is such a great answer. He goes on, he says, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion. The word dispersion literally means the scattering. It literally means this is the scattered. This is what God has done. It's been a very normal, normal way that God has done this. And he scatters people always for the same reason, and that is to spread the gospel. If you find yourself scattered for any reason, it's so the gospel can go out. And your option is this, wallow or get on board. Because if you wallow, he'll raise someone else to do it in your place. I want to get on board. The audience of First Peter has a brand new what if. Here's their brand new what if. What if they now kill us because of Jesus? Aren't you glad that that's not your what if right now? This is their what if. If you can be prepared for that what if, I don't care what if, whatever what if happens to you, you can be prepared because if you can deal with that, you can deal with anything. I want to go to our so what's. To close this out, here's what Peter does. Peter chooses very intentionally words that these people need to hear. They just need to hear these things. They need to be trained in them. They need to be encouraged in them. What are those who are in exile, those whose lives are completely unstable, what do they need to hear the most? What are those who are suffering, who are frustrated, who don't know why they're in the position they're in, whose lives are more difficult, those who have been scattered against their will or desire, what do they need to know? Four things. Number one, though the world rejects me, God knows me personally. I want to come back to this election for just a moment. The most secure thing in your life is your salvation, your scattering your difficulty and your suffering probably has nothing to do with your relationship with God. Here's what he says. He goes, you were elected according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Uh, Foreknowledge, uh, most people think it's this idea that God knows all the future and all the things that are going to happen, and though that's true, in its context, this actually seems to be a knowledge beforehand about a person, about people, that you were elected and you were chosen and before you were even born, God knew you and loved you intimately. He set you apart for himself. He plucked you out. He loves you. Your salvation is the most secure thing in your life. Though the world rejects me, God knows me personally. Your salvation is incredibly personal and your suffering, by the way, it was elected because God counted you worthy to be able to do it. And you're like, that's not what I wanted. And he's like, you're mine. It doesn't matter if you want it or not. I own you. And we are here about something bigger than just simply ease and comfort. Again, if you can be prepared for First Peter's what if, I'm telling you anything that this world has to throw at you right now, you can take it. Number two, my exile is not just for them to meet Jesus, but for me to become more like Jesus. Here's what he says. You were elected in the sanctification or for the sanctification that is in the spirit. Sanctification is a big theological word. means very simply this. Being made holy, more like Jesus, or being set apart to be more like him. That's simply what it means. So if I say uh, I'm getting sanctified, <laughs> that means I'm becoming more, more holy or something of the sorts. But here, here's the whole point. 
Why would God elect you and choose you for exile and for salvation? Why would he even allow you to go through all this so that you could become more like Jesus? This is like really, this is probably one of the more frustrating things that I don't even like saying, but it's true. When, have I, when has my spiritual growth been most accelerated? Pain. When has my worldliness taken over me most quickly? Prosperity and ease. So if I'm Jesus, I'm like, hmm, ease makes you more worldly, and suffering makes you more like me. Am I going to be willing, actually, maybe to even allow life to be harder than you wanted it to be, to form Christ in you? Yes. So for some Christians, these are new ideas. This is like literally from the beginning of the Bible to the end. God is not against allowing the people of God to have hard times. They just always have. We live in this amazing little bubble in history of ease. The vast majority of the church has never known. I am thankful for it. I would like to protect it as long as we can. I would never choose to walk into suffering. I don't like it. But this is a very unique thing in terms of the history of the church and in the landscape of the church right now in the world. Number three, I am required to obey this letter to the very word without hesitation. Can I tell you why? When we dig deep into words, why you should pay relentless attention to whoever's preaching what they say. Because it is as if Jesus, when we read the text, it's as if Jesus is reading it to you. I don't care if it is Cornelius in our worship set or if it's the preacher while he's reading the text. It is as if Jesus himself said it. And I want to understand in mind the depths of that word. Why? So that if I have a false or wrong thought, I can adjust my mind. If my heart, passions, and values are off-centered on Christ, I want to readjust them. If my lifestyle is not the life of Christ that he wants for me, I want to adjust that. I want to pay attention to the jot and the tittles and to every single nuance of the text because I want to obey it. And here's what Peter's basically saying. He's exerting his authority over the church, saying, everything I write to you, it is as if Jesus said it. And here's why we're doing it. You were elected and chosen for this. You're receiving this letter for obedience to Jesus Christ. You will, again, hear ideas that Peter has. They will grind your American mindset. And you have one of two options. Say, Peter is wrong or bend the knee, because maybe we're wrong. And this is just one of the joys of preaching is even as I go through and I teach on a regular basis, I am struck by how many wrong ideas I have. And I need the word of God regularly to realign my mindset, to think more like Christ thought. Finally, number four, despite my exile, fill in the blank, it could be suffering, it could be pain, disappointment, discontentment. Despite my fill in the blank, my relationship with God is the most secure part of my life. He says this, you were elected for sprinkling with his blood. Is that kind of dark, by the way? Think about that literally. Now, don't worry, we don't sprinkle with blood. It's a metaphor um, that Paul is using to talk about the blood of Christ that cleanses you. But this concept goes all the way back to the Old Testament. And here's why people would be sprinkled with blood under the Old Covenant. Uh, number one, you'd be sprinkled with blood to cleanse a leper. Number two, to ordain a priest. And number three, to inaugurate a covenant. Let me tell you what he's telling you. 
when you are metaphorically sprinkled with the blood of Christ, meaning when you trust in Christ for your salvation, God inaugurates a covenant with you and he commits himself to you forever. And in the same way that a leper was cleansed by the sprinkling of blood, you are cleansed from all of your sins. And in the same way that a priest was ordained to ministry under the old covenant, so when you are sprinkled with blood, you are not just covenanted with, you are not just cleansed, but you are called. You are called into a representative role of Jesus Christ. Here's what he says to them. You who are suffering, you are cleansed, you are called, and you are covenanted with, with, by God himself. Your relationship with God is the most secure thing on the planet. When difficulty happens, the people of God need to stop shaking our fists and bend the knee. We need to stop saying, why are you doing this to me? And say, God, what is your strategy? Why here? Why now? What's broken out there? What's broken in here? I'm listening. I'm ready. Sometimes our suffering gets prolonged because we're so pouty and we stop trying to figure out what God's up to in the first place. Maybe he's up to something really amazing. Maybe the temporary suffering is going to give way to something far more amazing than your comfort ever could. Maybe the sermon that you need to preach will only be given the power it needs because of your pain, and the person you love won't actually understand it until you preach with pain because you understand it. I don't know. I don't know what the Lord is doing, but I know this. He doesn't waste your pain. We waste it. He doesn't waste a scattering. We waste it. But if you're there, get the pouty voice, kill it, and say, God, what are you doing? Why am I here? What are you up to? And Peter's going to just instruct and encourage and clarify. It's going to be a great series. Uh, and we're going to dig in and uh, we're going to be fully attentive for all 45 weeks of First Peter, right? Just kidding, over 45 weeks. Uh, take us to, to uh, the end of November, beginning of December. Uh, as we come to our communion table, we do this at the end of our sermons to draw your hearts to Christ. Here's how Peter ends this short little introductory section. He says this, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is not a trite truism. This is not just something he writes. If you haven't noticed, every word that Peter writes is intentional and it has meat to it. Imagine that Peter is writing and, or talking and Sylvanus is trying to document his words and, and he says, write this. What do, what do they need? They need grace and they need peace and they need it multiplied because they don't just need it once because the suffering and this persecution that these sheep are going through, it's going to be enduring. And in fact, it's going to go till some of them are killed by it. Here's what they need. They need grace, which is not, again, we hear the word grace. It's just like ethereal theological concept. Let me give you just meat to this. Grace is supernatural help from God in the moment. There's saving grace where God entered your life and he saved you and he gave you the help to be saved, right? There's saving grace, but then there is daily grace that, that you need help from God. When you're in the middle of difficulty and trial and suffering, what do you need? Help. Help me. Peace is not just like a good feeling. Peace is what the Holy Spirit gives so that your mind and your heart rest and you're able to see the large picture of God and you become content with whatever God is doing. And you don't just need this once. Here's what the Christian needs. We need it multiplied over and over and over again because as suffering and difficulty go on, we forget, right, what God gave us last week. We're like, I need more grace. I need more peace. And so we tell people is when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, grace upon grace upon grace and mercy upon mercy and peace upon peace is yours in Christ. He is offering it to you. 
The flip side to this is that God does not dispense helping grace and, and, and spiritual peace apart from faith in Jesus. That's actually one of the most difficult parts of this. He's looking to believers and saying, because you've trusted in Jesus and you have the Holy Spirit, you have access to two tools that if you will beg God for them, he will give them to you. What, what do I do when I have a headache? I have a tool. That tool is Motrin and a glass of water. What do I do when my dog pees in the carpet? I've got a tool. It's the green machine. What do I do when I'm overwhelmed? My tool is I go before the Lord and I say, I need grace multiplied. Help, help, help. I need peace. And you go before the Lord and you beg him for peace and for grace. Help, peace. And that is the tool. He's given you the Holy Spirit inside of you. And so when you are needing it, we come to him on a regular basis. But here's what I want to say to you. If you are a believer in Jesus, you have every tool that you need to endure whatever what if becomes your what is. Does that make sense? Whatever what if becomes your what is, you have what you need. But if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, I'm going to just come before you and say, these tools are given to people who have trusted in Christ and only people who have trusted in Christ. So I want to just put before you that if you are going through any hardship whatsoever, you need grace and you need peace, and it comes through faith in Jesus Christ. So we celebrate communion as we remind ourselves of what Jesus did for us. Uh, These elements represent that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins in our place. They represent that our sin needed to be paid for, and either we're going to pay for it or Jesus does, and he has offered to pay for our sins for anybody who would trust in him. These elements also propel us forward to a resurrection where God the Father raised Jesus from the dead saying this sacrifice was actually accepted for anybody who trusted him. If you have never trusted in Christ, I want to just tell you some amazing news. Good people are not the ones who get to go to heaven. You don't ever get to heaven by accruing good works. You get to heaven by trusting in Christ because he was good for you. If today you've never trusted in Christ, I just want to offer to you Jesus He promises you his word. He promises you his spirit. He promises you then grace and peace, and he promises it in spades. And so if that's a decision you've never made, I just want to come before you and say, trust in Christ today, and all that is yours in him. Now, here's how we do communion. If you're visiting with us from a different church, um, I don't care where you go to church. If you've trusted in Jesus, I want to invite you. Would you partake of communion with us? We are one body in Jesus. Uh, If you've never trusted in Christ, what we ask is you let the elements pass because as you partake of communion, the Bible says you're making a declaration. You're declaring that you believe Jesus is God. You're declaring that you believe he died on the cross for your sins. You're you're declaring that you believe he's coming back. You're you're declaring a whole lot. So if you've never trusted in Christ, uh, we just want to ask you, you let the elements pass. Nobody will look at you or judge you or or think twice. Uh, So here's what we'll do. We'll have a time of just silence, opportunity for you to pray uh, and thank God. Uh, I'll close our time in prayer and then we're going to stand and worship together as the elements are handed out. Would you just hold on to the elements until the end of the song and then we'll partake together as a symbol of our unity in Jesus Christ. Let's have a time of silence with the Lord.